Hey, listeners, this is Marsha Epstein in Lawrence, Kansas on Talk With Me, and today is September 12th, 2017. I say that to orient myself and you, who knows what we're going to be talking about. There may be some events mentioned. There may not be, but anyway, September 12th, 2017 is when we recorded this show of Talk With Me, where my guest today will be a poet who is a fellow poet with several other poets in different parts of the country who I admire. And so this is going to be cool. I must give a shout out because it is September 12th. And for me in my work and my tagline for Talk With Me, which is that we're at the intersection of art and mental health. A lot of what that means to me is art is one of those things that helps people experience life as worth living. And that, my friends, is what suicide prevention is about. And you may or may not know that this very week, always the week with September 10th, is in our country National Suicide Prevention Week because September 10th is World Suicide Prevention Day. I'm not going to talk to you about suicide prevention. I'm going to tell you just a minute about this awesome, wonderful thing that happens every year in Lawrence, Kansas, that I have the privilege of hosting, which is called Words Save Lives. And this year on Sunday, September 10th, for four hours, we filled a room in the historic Hotel Eldridge, room space that was donated to us. Thank you, Hotel Eldridge, a wonderful place. And we had poetry, stories, comedy, music, and we ended with a fabulous drag performance by Ms. Amanda Love. And it was all beautiful and wonderful. And yes, it was all in the spirit of connecting people knowing people belong, laughing, crying, loving each other. It was a beautiful event, and that is what life should be filled with. And today, I get to bring you a guest poet who I've not yet met, but I know some of his colleagues who I greatly care for and admire their work. So I'm excited to get to know, and for you listeners to get to know, Heath Brocker. Hey, Heath, how are you this morning? Uh, very good. How are you? Good. I'm good. So tell us a little bit about who you are and where you are, because I'm here, obviously involved with my social work and this podcast in Lawrence, Kansas. What's a little bit about you? Um, I'm in York, Pennsylvania. I was born and raised in York, Pennsylvania. Um, I went to Temple University. Um, then, uh, I've, I've been writing my entire life, but I didn't begin submitting any of, any of the duffel bags filled with notebooks, <laughs> um, until three years ago. Okay. Um, uh, so I have at least, uh, 60 books and counting. I keep finding new ones that I've written that all need to be typed up and sent out. I just sent out my, what I consider to be my most important book yet. Um, it's uh, a, style, a certain style I kind of developed as far back as age 17. So that's 20 years. I'm 37 years old now uh, called Spiralism. And uh, it's, it's currently 
um, I've um, submitted to a certain press that I, I love and hopefully they'll accept it. If not, then my, I'm going to just be zeroed in on finding a, a press that will publish this book. Sure. Because it, it begins, uh, I want to get the, my my main work out there because um, this, the, my, my other stuff, I, I, I like it, but it's not mine. I feel like spiralism is mine. Um, okay. But I, I, I went, to, went to Temple with, to backtrack a little. I want, also went to my uh, middle school and high school um, at a place they call Snob Hill. Um, <laughs> Snob Hill. I went to school with a bunch of stuck-up um, snobby scumbags, in my opinion, um, who pretty much put me through a daily grind of hum- humiliation and um, just invective and ri- ridicule. And um, so it was, it was just uh, hell for me. And I know poetry really came in handy then because I I could write about it and, you know, just get it. It was a way very cathartic for me at that point in my life. Yeah. Um, although I, I found um, a poetry book that, uh, or a, a notebook that uh, I'd written in as, as far back as second grade that I found. And um, I saw it had some real terrible short stories in it and some pictures. And so I, uh, most of the pages were empty. So um, like two or three times a year, I'll write in it. And I, I just slapped the, the the title on it, Life Book. So when I'm on my deathbed or whatever, I can look back, you know, and see, you know, go through my life. It's not for, meant to be published or anything. It's just uh-huh. for me. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, but I've spent the past uh, 12 years living as a uh, pretty much a, a hermit, like a recluse, uh, because I wanted to disconnect myself from uh society uh be uh because i i believe society to be insane um and i wanted to in humans mirror their surroundings so i literally got rid of all the mirror mirrors in my apartment too for 12 years only mirror in the bathroom and um i just wanted to mirror my own thoughts and and during this time, I I cultivated my own intellect. That's a, a phrase I use. I, I think people need to cultivate their own intellects. And once you do that, you can kind of start to spiral, as I call it. And uh, each day, you know, it's kind of limitless. You kind of, each day is something new. And um, if you can sync up to that spiral mindset, uh, that I, I've written about that in some of my books, um, but uh, spiralism is a, is a totally different thing. But uh, so what so, you just described is not spiralism. Is that what you just said? Yeah, the books I've I've published so far are not spiralism. Okay, they're not spiralist books, but um, I, I I admit to having to change uh, certain poems to. Uh, make them more palatable to the editors just to get published because this literary world is very corrupt and uh, full of cronyism. And um, uh, that's one of my goals is to level the playing field. So everyone has a, you know, their 
deserve to be heard, you deserve to be heard. Uh-huh. Um, a person shouldn't be judged by their bio instead of the, their work. And that happens much too often, in my opinion. Uh-huh. So I don't know if that's a background for you. Okay. Well, <laughs> there are lots of in my <laughs> yeah, lots of things that come to my mind, um, and that's kind of what I tend to do is go, "Hey, I'm interested in this, and I want to I want to develop this thread more." So I want to I want to ask you the a really basic question, which is you you said you you have been writing all your life that you in fact found that notebook that you'd started in second grade. And, and you talked about high school being a time when your writing was, well, poetry writing was particularly important to you. And, and so my, my question is, how do you think that you started writing in terms of what led you to want to write and then to realize think, that was an important thing for you? I think that it was just in me ever since I learned how to write and um it was just a, a cathartic feeling to just get something out. I mean, get my thoughts out, even as far back as second grade, I guess. Because I, I my whole, my entire life, I've I've known I've wanted to be a a writer. Um, and the, the th- uh, funny thing about it is, is that no one, no one who I know, um, personally, not my parents, not my best friends. Uh, you know, none of none of those people knew that I wrote anything until I was 34 years old when I got my first acceptance letter and had to tell them when I started typing my stuff up. So I hid all my stuff in, in high school. I used to, um, that's when I started my first real notebook, but I used to write mostly on these little pieces of paper because they were much easier to hide. And I've got stacks and stacks of those. Um, my mom fa- actually found them once when she was rooting through my room. <laughs> um, but um, and and she said something like, "You you copy down song lyrics, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, that's what those were. Those were song lyrics I copied." I didn't. I just didn't want anyone to know that I, I wrote. Um, uh, I don't know why. Uh, it was so well in my teens. I think uh, it was. In, I was afraid of being embarrassed. I, I guess it was. I was already my my self esteem was so low in high school that I thought if I let people into my deepest thoughts, they just and you know, and they left at that, that would really, really hurt. Mm-hmm. Well, so your writing was very, very private. And, yes. and still, yes. that not that, a single person knew until I was thirty four years old. And and still, it was essential for you to do and helpful for you to do from what you're saying yes most definitely what what was it that uh i guess i want to i still i'm interested in the writing and i understand you're saying it was a private thing was were you a kid who who read a lot who was read to a lot i mean do you you have Uh, any any connections with gosh how did i even know writing was a thing that uh, I did. I did read a lot. Uh, um, so starting probably in ninth grade is when I started reading a lot. Um, before that, I didn't read that much. Um, I, I liked. Uh, I, re- I read Mark Twain books. Yeah, but uh, 
I remember I used to have, people didn't even used to know that I read either. I hid that too. I remember having to sneak down into my basement when I, I, during the summer. I'd look out the window, see both my parents that pull off to run down into this old musty room with a bunch of old books that I have and just uh, grab one. I have a bunch of Hemingway books here that are actually autographed and, and signed to my um, grandmother, wow. <laughs> um, who's, who's friends with his family. Um, because her brother um, was his Hemingway's doctor, and um, they they were close friends. So um, I was reading these books that that um, have his um, his autograph on them, and kind of storing them under my bed and hiding them. But I wow. have them out out and open now. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you you actually got to be the one to to keep those books. Yeah, I still have. In fact, I'm holding one right now. <laughs> That's very cool. So you read privately, yeah. you wrote privately. Very, very yeah. interesting to me. Yeah. And when you finally decided, I'm going to put this out in the world, what what fueled that? Do you remember? Um, I was 34 years old, and I I was living in an apartment where and it it had snowed and probably a foot or so and this water was uh, leaking from my ceiling i i had pots and pans all over the place um and uh the holes kept getting bigger and bigger it was like chinese water torture living in there but there's a few there were a few giant holes and i noticed my breathing started to get a bit um difficult and um it got to the point where i could barely walk up the steps to my apartment without panning for breath and uh, i just got lucky that i happened to go over to my parents one night when i was really having trouble breathing and um thankfully my dad called an ambulance because my oxygen level was at such a low level that a level that uh, you can die from i was put into an induced coma for two days uh woke up from that um one of the nurses forgot to give me the medication to keep me sedated i woke up from that and tore the uh tube that was in my throat breathing tube out uh which caused me to have to stay another 14 days in the hospital uh-huh. so uh after that experience i, I got out and thought i almost just died and um you know what what no one would have known of my writings if i hadn't if you know i gotta get gotta get on so i gotta get submitting because i just i just almost died because there's mold mold probably asbestos i was breathing in yeah but it got really bad after like after two through two weeks two three weeks a month is, mm-hmm. I was just huffing and puffing everywhere I went. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that crisis of health changed your perspective from from this writing that was hidden from the world. Yeah. Well, I still didn't tell anyone that what I started submitting. And my, my first, um, I can't even look up here. My first like three submissions were to. Poetry magazine at a time when I didn't even know what a cover letter was, or or 
or bio or I had no bio or anything. I was just getting to because uh, I I got a subscription to Poetry Magazine and just looking at their bios and going, you know, submitting to where they had been published and they, you know, been published in all the top magazines, the croniest corrupt magazines. Um, I guess I just happened to see Blazebox somewhere and um, is is was about two months of submitting and nothing but rejection letters. I was, and I was so used to getting rejection letters that uh, my first acceptance letter, I almost deleted it without even looking at it. And thank God I opened it and looked at it. And it was uh, Jeffrey Gatza of Blazebox. I always say he kind of saved my life with that submission because I was ready to give up. Um, <clears throat> wow. So I gave up submitting and um, to, to, yeah, pretty much on life because I, you know, I was just in a dark spot at that time. And I thought, oh, every place turned me down and, uh, you know, plowshares, uh, Agni, you know, they wouldn't accept me now. They wouldn't accept me, you know, they have their agenda. They have certain people they accept and they don't. And, and but, I, um, that's a whole you, different tangent. Yeah, it is. And also, I want to give a shout out to your friend, Scott Thomas Outlaw, because one of the cool things that Scott shared when we talked last was how one way that he identified publishers that he might send his work to was by reading lots of people's work and then following sort of the trails that they left yeah. in terms of where were well, they published. And he even has, that, a, has a resource list on his 17 NUMA website to share with other people, which is way cool. That's a great website, yeah. yeah. And that's eventually kind of what happened to me. Um, I found, um, I read this amazing poem by Polino Soriano, who, who I don't know if you've heard of, if you haven't. Polino um, uh, uh, Soriano and Heller Levinson, uh, in my opinion, are the two greatest living poets. And for everyone out there, if you have not heard of these people, um, you should go out now and buy their books because it's flat out amazing. Um, Heller Levinson was nominated for uh, a Pulitzer Prize for his first book of Hinge Theory. But I'm um, getting off topic again, but I just wanted to definitely plug plug those two guys because they really deserve it. Uh, they're, they're, they're geniuses. And um, what you were asking about... Uh, oh, I saw I Aflino Soriano poem and I really liked it. It blew me away. And so I looked him up, and um, he has a, his own page, and I and I started talking to him a little bit, and I he, he writes more experimental stuff, and I would look at his page where he's been publishing, and then I started submitting there, and some of the places he'd been um, published in, and that helped a lot, mm -hmm. just like Scott did with him. Yeah, because there is that that issue of fit that. There are lots of different presses, lots of different journals, and and so they. From my experience with the the people I've known, it's that good fit with what is 
the kind of writing that represents this certain press. And so people need to be really aware of who they're sending their work to, you know, like it's this, yeah. I could have wonderful work, but it's not the kind of work this person, this press publishes. So there's mm -hmm. no need to, to send it there, but there are these other places. And, and the yeah. other piece being that everybody has many, many, many more rejections than acceptances of their work that they send out. And it's all part of the process is that those, yeah. it's like other parts of life. We, we learn from those things that didn't work the way we wanted them mm -hmm. to. Um, and that helps us get yeah. to the other places. So it's, it's, yeah, you've, it's you've got to just let the, let the rejections run right off your back. Like they're nothing. Just, I, I just got a rejection. Uh, yesterday, uh, I had um, 13 um, acceptances in a row, and I was kind of just getting used to <laughs> some acceptances, and I got a rejection. And for the first time in a long time, it kind of stung just a little bit, but, uh, you know, I said, you know, it's over with, done. Mm -hmm. Well, instead of talking more about your poetry right now i wonder if now is the time when you would share some of your poetry um yes uh, i'll share you a poem from my first book titled a curmudgeon is born which was published by yellow chair press um in june of 2016 and it was also nominated for a best of annette award by uh some editor i can't remember his name. Some nobody, nothing. Uh, uh, <laughs> wait, it might be one um, of my friends. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, think, let me think. Wait, wait. Let me think. Let me think. Some, some, some nobody, nothing. Oh, wait, wait, wait. It was Scott Thomas Adler. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nobody, nothing. Okay. <laughs> he's, the one gave, he's the one who gave. He's the one who nothing. <laughs> no, no. Excuse me. Scott Thomas Adler is amazing. Uh, yes, he is. He's the hardest working person I've ever seen. Um, I just wanted to get that joke in there. <laughs> I just wanted to get that joke in there. Um, <laughs> Gotta tease uh, your buds. Yep. The the only reason I accepted it was because Heller Levinson had said he liked this particular poem, and he's okay. a Pulitzer Prize uh, nominee. So I I I accepted the best of the net. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the poem is titled curriculums. Um, I am always, always in my way through life, turnstiling through these days made of illusion and lies. The hamster wheel spinneth eternal, fan rotation and so forth, until I unlatch from this loop to see that circular paths are false, for the truth lives within the spiral to unsnag from the grindstone endlessly turning, one must disconnect oneself in order to stop this massively insane friction. That's it, that's the end. And obviously, and obviously that has many levels of references to spirals and circles and so, Yes. Since I don't yet know your definition of spiralism, is this leading towards that style, or is this totally um, separate? Uh, well, the the spiralist poems themselves are actually um, I, I called it auraism uh, up until about 
a year ago when I switched to spiralism because I I happen to have a cyst on on my brain uh, right behind my left eye, and uh, so I've had seizures throughout my life, and uh, these uh, these spiral poems kind of they're kind of ugly looking, <laughs> I would say, and kind of very asymmetrical, and but um, I I called them originally orism because they uh, they have a feeling kind of the same kind of feeling that you get for a seizure. I, I remember reading one thinking it's kind of like what it feels like where you have a seizure. Just just kind of uh images and and ideas sprinkled together kind of randomly, um, all put together with uh semicolons and every poem ends in a semicolon uh, as if the poem never actually stops as it, as it, if it continues to spiral outward almost you know, just to, to kind of hint at that mm-hmm. although I've had to tamper some of it down just to get this first book published so uh, hopefully published um, I've had to tamper it down but I, I do it the past 20 years I've been putting the main spiralist book together in my head for the past 20 years uh-huh. so I know what all I need for that it's just a matter of finding them in all these notebooks Mm-hmm. I found them all yet. Do you have one of those poems that you would like to share? Uh, Spiral's poem, uh, not in front of me okay. right okay. now. No. Uh, sorry about that. Um, okay. um, I could read you a, a real short one that everyone likes, only seven <laughs> lines long. <laughs> you can read uh, the short one. You can also read longer ones, but sure. The, seven, the one that everyone long, likes. See people, this is the one people always seem to like. Okay. Um, and it's probably probably because it's seven lines long. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's, it's titled Misperception. That oak tree is not really an oak tree. That oak tree is only an oak tree because you call it an oak tree. Maybe you should stop lying to yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Scott always laughs at the end. Yeah. yeah. We uh, we were in Philly recently and uh, we went uh, to South Street and did all these uh, wacky, crazy videos of ourselves and he laughed. And uh, every time I read that, he laughed and he couldn't yeah. help himself. <laughs> It's very yeah. accessible in terms of the the seven lines that let you hear the whole, let me hear the whole set of words, and then my brain gets to interact with all of those things. And I'm sure that the next time I hear that poem, there'll be some different thoughts and reactions that come from it. But but that yeah, that, yeah that's that's very cool. In in the first book. Uh... A, a curmudgeon is born is written it was written with the intention of each poem is kind of different stylistically so i i wanted to kind of try to spiral the poems out kind of have them kind of spiral out mm-hmm. so it starts off with more short poems and grows into uh longer poems okay so is there one of those longer but, poems that you'd like to share um 
see if I the voice guys. Um, here's wait. Here's one. Uh, got it right here. It's titled Hello Smithereens. Hello, Smithereens. The Westerton Bells have been melted into bullets so fascistly unpoetic. Fierce revolving of stars, rot button karmas, dissimism in the chest and head. I'll never forget you, who could, after that dent you left. Hypoxic illusions moving westward years later, while hoping for a more leaf clover, finding only diversionary thought patterns, along with the rosy retrospection bias and folk intuition, Make no king of me as the dark clouds move, bribing viands and villains, manufacturing the outrage, saying, you're with R now, with marbles in their mouths. The kings and queens of Washington have slowly succumbed to this newly spread American disease. Everyone is wrong. When did you write that poem? I'm sorry. When did you write that poem? Uh, I wrote this poem probably in my mid-20s. So a long time ago. Okay. So the reason I'm asking that is because, to me, that's one of those examples of a poem that had a certain set of roots, and then when you move it to this different context of time, yeah, meanings. Uh, and you could have told exactly. me that you wrote it's it probably written about Bush. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it, I think it applies even more so with Trump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's yeah. what that's why I wanted to know when it, it was first you know, created. How, how have world events affected you and your writing? Uh, I'm sorry, how has. How have world events, November 8th election on, how, how has um, that affected your writing? Um, not that much, really. I, I've written, I've been published in um, uh, this really great anthology um, titled Not My President by uh, uh, Adam, Adam LeVon Brown's um, press, Madness Muse Press. Um, which is a really great uh, press, and he's he's an amazing uh, uh, poet himself. He just started writing three years ago, and he's doing stuff that's blowing my mind already. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, he's one to keep an eye on for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I've written a, a few poems about it. Um, a few of them have been published. Uh, it really has an effect affected my writing that that much really mm-hmm. okay we've been involved with a lot obviously written a lot and you've been involved with a lot of different kinds of projects and before we were on air you were telling me about one and I, and I didn't hear the story but something about a contest that resulted in an anthology yes um this is the um the anthology i edited titled Luminous Echoes, um, which uh, was put out by uh, Into the Void Publishing. There, I'm, I'm now the co-poetry editor of this ma- magazine, which we recent recently won the 2017 Saboteur 
award um, after only four issues of the magazine, which is impressive. But um, I was he he came to me and asked me if I would judge this contest, and I didn't know him at all other than what I had submitted, and he had accepted a poem of mine. I didn't know him at all. If it if it had been someone I had known, I would have said no <laughs> because I, I because I, because I thought that it would have been you know a preferential treatment and I don't I don't want that um, and since I didn't know him that's the only reason I said yes I do it and um, it just so happened that uh, about a, a week before the submission started for this contest. Uh, into the Void was listed in Poets and Writers magazine, which is a pretty big time magazine, <laughs> as one of the nine new journals of, of 2016 that you must read. Cool. So I was, hit with a, I was hit with a barrage of submissions, uh, the likes of which I've never seen. <laughs> I was barely getting any sleep, but I was, I was, I was so glad, glad to be finished with it. But there were so many other great poems in there. I was talking to the, the editor. Uh, Philip Elliott, who's a, who's also a, he's only 24 years old. He's also a complete uh, genius. Uh, his his first book, uh, Dreaming in Starlight, available on um, Amazon. It debuted at number one for letters uh, for books of um, fictional letters. Um, it's amazing for a debut. And uh, but um, I was talking to him on Facebook, and uh, I just kind of on a wing and a prayer throughout the idea that, Hey, it'd be pretty cool if we, uh, did it and did some kind of anthology of the, of the ones, the, of the leftovers that were re- really good. And he jumped on it real fast. Said, yeah, it's a great idea. We should do that. And, um, uh, so that, then I had to find another, go back and find another 60 best poems. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, um, so I kind of shot myself in the foot by that, but it turned out for the best because um, we sold out every single issue of this. Um, of all the proceeds of this are donated to a place called Pieta House in Ireland, which is the only um, uh, clinic in Ireland that is free for people who are suicidal or or might want to cause themselves self-harm. And uh, we... Um, we had a, ball, a, a reading in Boston uh, set up by Tom Daly. He's amazing. I can't thank him enough. Um, he, he's a, an extremely magnanimous person. And I cannot thank him enough for setting up this reading. And Philip sent me the, the 160 uh, copies of it to bring there. And we sold out every single one at this reading. Um, I was there with uh, Matt Dugan, who actually won the contest. Um, he's an, also an amazing writer uh, uh, from England. Um, I've, I've done some readings over there with him, and um, this is the first time he came to the U.S. in was Boston for the, this Luminous Echoes reading, but um, he's an amazing writer. Everyone should check out his book. He has a new one coming out really soon. I can't wait to read. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this this anthology just on a wing and a prayer. I just put it into one of my messages on Facebook. Um, 
like in the middle somewhere and just he responded back yeah it's a great idea and it turned out great and uh i i can't thank tom daly enough for this um but, uh, this is that's one of the things i'm most proud of because you know it, this could have hopefully saved some people's lives yes yes this boom. Yeah, this, this is an argument I have with my friend, Wolfgang Karstens, who is a poet and he's the person oh, behind I, the Epic Rights Press. Uh, and, yeah, I, know, I was just talking to John Yammers earlier uh, today. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, and Wolf says, no, my words don't save any lives. And I said, well, you know, that's, that's a point we're going to argue about because, and when, when I say that words save lives to me, I have experienced so many times on both the audience side and the writer side with people talking about the impact of, of their poetry. Writers like you who found great importance for themselves in their writing being a way to help them deal with things going on in life and audience members who might not even be writers who feel so moved by that person who's at that reading, who is sharing experiences that really resonate for that audience member. And so suddenly they know they're not the only one and, and they get some yeah, exactly. and they get some hope. And those things add up to saving lives. I, I have no question about that. Yeah, same here. Same. Yeah. Um, I wish so there were more copies you, I could tell you to get, but they're, they're sold yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> one yeah. Of all of them. Yeah. Uh, so you you write, and to give us a sense uh, of you as edit. a person, are there some, you write, you edit, but also are there some not writing kinds of things that are really important to you? I, I'm sorry, I... I I missed the end of that. Are there things that you do that really don't look like they are connected to your writing, but that are super important to you? Um, I, I, there is an experimental side to me. Um, I, I like to do experimental writing, and um, sometimes uh, there may be not much pith to that, um, but there's a uh, it just it just intrigues me, and um, it's always I've I've always wanted to just push push the edge, push the envelope as much as I can, and just I, I, in my opinion, uh, mankind is faced in the wrong direction, and I just want to do whatever I can to nudge it as, mm -hmm. as little and as slight as that might be, nudge it toward the proper direction. Because we, we we live caged by these these man-made realities that I talk about often in my uh, books. Actually, man-made man-made realities, um, as opposed to the universal realities, the true universal realities. Which was summed life. up in your seven-line poem, right? <laughs> man yeah, it's, a, it's in a bunch of yeah, it's in a bunch of my poems. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's it's this obsession with money. Uh, it's it's is the main uh, um, disillusionment 
disillusioned. I think um, everyone believes in 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 money when in ownership when there there is no such thing. It can only exist unless everyone else agrees upon it. Mm-hmm. So it, I just want to try to get uh, you know just like my ideas out there and kind of nudge humanity's much as I can, which I know yeah. won't be much, but just as much as I can towards okay. sanity instead yeah. of this insane way it's facing. Yes. And and although you, you mention the obsession with money um, in, as obviously a problem, I, I want to use that, that concept and twist it a bit to uh, remind people that writers and other artists also do need money for their work. And so when you say you love poetry, that means you need to put some of your money there, friends. That means you need to buy some of those books, not just scour the internet for what you can read for free. And, and that you need to, you know, it's, it's, it is a way that we show our appreciation and value. Um, I, I, I nudged your friend Scott Thomas Outlaw last night on Facebook because he owes me a book that I sent money for. <laughs> and, he owes you one? <laughs> yeah, he does. And, and uh, it, was, it was a friendly nudge, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> And but my reminder is, you know, people, we get to go to readings that are free. We can find all kinds of things, videos and and on the page kinds of works on the internet for free. Mm-hmm. And artists are working so hard to create their work, whether it's poetry or other writing or sculpture or dance or whichever arts they have. And we need to do those things where we also contribute some money for our getting to appreciate that art. So go to the readings, yeah. buy the books when you can from yes, that. I, I always, that's, that's, that's something that's mandatory for me when one of my close friends uh, comes out, but I automatically buy it. I just pre, pre-ordered Matt, uh-huh. Matt Dugan's new book. Uh-huh. Um, it's not even, it doesn't even come out um, for a while yet. But uh-huh. I mean, I always support, always. You, yeah. You've got to support your friends in, yeah. in this, or else, you know. Um, we, and those, I, could, we, I could go further into that. Yeah. In your book, and, but, and, but not yeah. just supporting your friends. You know, it's like, I, I love, you You mentioned um, John Amaris, who is an amazing poet and is also yeah. one of the two I've connected with through Wolfgang and Epic Rights Press. And John is very upfront that he buys somebody's book every week of the year. And I'm not saying, yeah. folks, I'm not saying he's spending 50 bucks on a hardbound, huge poetry volume. You know, maybe it's 10 bucks with postage, you know, who knows? But mm-hmm. but to experience reading different people's works and supporting them, and whenever exactly. possible, I'm getting back to buy it from the artist, buy it from the small press, get your yes. local independent bookseller who hosts readings to order the book for you if they can. Use those big online retailers as the last resort. If that's the only way you can get it, 
cool, get it there. But if you can get it more locally, you're really doing more to support your yes, local uh, arts. And, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. the only way that I, that I'll, I'll order a book um, is is through the press. I yeah. I I stay off Amazon only unless I have to go there. Right. right. Um, and as far as John Yammers, he he uh, bought my most recent book, and um, I bought his most recent book, is Real as Rain, which is really yes. an, an amazing book. It has yes. well, my, my new book has um, art within it too, but he has. Um, his yeah, has amazing that, artwork in it yeah, as well. Yeah, uh, he told me of a new book. I don't know if should we talk about this, but his tongue about his next book sounds really good. Yeah, John's work say. is amazing. But, He's a wonderful person. And I'm gonna say I was trying to prompt you to talk about something you didn't quite get to. I know, and you probably know that John Yamaris loves dogs, and I'm kind of yes. thinking you might have a thing for dogs and cats too. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, my grandfather uh, donated um, the Brocker Companion Animal Shelter to um, um, my hometown. Um, my my step grandmother uh, is involved with all kinds of. Um, animal uh helping animals she has seven or eight uh dogs herself um and uh my mom uh has this business it's a charity really called paul's soup kitchen where uh once a week we go out and she, she bought this truck and cut a hole in the side of it um one of those box trucks put a hole in the side of it put a window in there she sits there and takes the orders and we stop at food kitchens and and whatnot and give away uh free dog and cat food to awesome. people with low income um so I'm, I'm running around like a maniac grabbing all the bags which and she's like, taking the orders up up there so that's very cool because that's one of those things that that is so hard for people, whether it's temporary or ongoing low income. How do we take care of our pets? And our pets are another thing that may be part of what keeps us alive, just as we keep them alive. You know that yeah. there's there's that bond that works both ways. Yeah. Most well, of that people, bond. Most people I know who have dogs or cats, including us they were dogs that came through some kind of rescue system as opposed to going yeah, out and ordering some fancy dog from some breeder, you know, that's the way you should go. Yes. Yeah, yeah. When you find a dog, yeah. I've, I've always said that the, the two greatest friends I've ever had in my life were both dogs <laughs> you growing up they're, they're, I mean, I've never had friends as loyal and as caring as them. Uh-huh. My two and best it, friends, and, and they're both passed on, but I mean, and it but, works mm. both ways, you know. It's like those those animals, you know, that that we love and love us. It it works both ways, and I think that's that's really important yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Well, I'm I'm glad to to have that that come out in the open, and where I'm sitting in in my my. I sit at my dining room table when I am recording the podcast. And one of the paintings in my dining room is a painting 
that is by Rob Plath, who is another oh, I know. epic rights yeah. press. And, and Rob does painting yeah. and photography in addition to his writing. And so we were talking about this. And so he's like, I want to, I want to, I want to give you a painting. I want to make a painting of your dog. So, so I have this lovely painting that's so sweet and it looks so much like our dog. And then it has this Van Gogh quote at the top of it. It says, well, if you quote? don't have a dog, at least one, there's not necessarily anything wrong with you, but there may be something wrong with your life. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a great Van Gogh quote. I never yeah. heard that one. That's, uh, I love that. <laughs> it sounds like a John Yammer's poem almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John has his whole bark book, right? So he's, oh, we're all about our... our yeah, my mom has that. My mom currently has that. She won't give it back to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've read the, I've read it all, but she won't give it back. She keeps it with her because she loves it so much. You know? As long as you know where it is, it could be okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So pets, dogs, cats, taking care of them, helping their people take care of them. That's an important thing too. Are there are there things that you go? You know, actually, there are these other kinds of things like. I'm thinking in in our correspondence before the show, you've got some big travels and and readings coming up. Is that right? Um, yes, I'm going to. Scott and I are both going to be the opening, or I'm sorry, open mic readers for um, an event in London for uh, Matt du- Matt Dugan and uh, Mario. Uh, Oh, I'm forgetting how to pronounce him. Uh, Mario Doming- Ca- Ca- Maria Castro Dominguez. Um, they're, they're the past two winners of the Urbachi Prize. Uh, this year's winner was Bulino Soriano. That's about to come out. That actually has one of my blurbs on the back of it. But um, the 2015-2016 winner of the Urbachi Prize, these are books that won out of uh, uh, 10,000 people submitted, you know, these books won. And um, so I'll, I'll be doing uh, uh, open mic there for that, Scott and I will. And uh, there's uh, a chance that um, Scott invited me along for this um, to possibly go out to Colorado and do some readings out there and possibly get to see um, Hunter S. Thompson's house because this woman is good friends with Hunter S. Thompson and possibly do readings there, take pictures there. Uh-huh. Well, so you guys should come to Lawrence, Kansas sometime because we get the the, the uh, claim of this was a longtime home for William S. Burroughs. And so uh, there's certainly... Yeah, what, yeah, Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah. I noticed that Lawrence, Kansas, when uh, you called it, that, that's actually where I did my first ever reading. Oh, wow. Topeka, Kansas. Yeah. Topeka's got I a great writing community oh, right now, uh, an amazing writing community from that combination of yeah, who are well The Inkscape magazine there is amazing magazine. Cool. There's a week, I mean, excuse but, me, monthly but, reading. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were talking about. Well, William Burroughs living yeah, uh, Lawrence, Kansas, which I know. Yeah, just because you, you know, like you can go to Colorado and read at Hunter S. Thompson's place. You can come to William S. Burroughs. You know, oh, they have his place. Here. In, 
oh, I didn't know. I would should have gone there when I was there. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Look at his book. Uh, look at his books that I've lined up here. Yeah. Um, one of one of my dear poet friends here in Lawrence, Jim McCreary, was a young um, colleague. I guess I don't know exactly what word to call him, but he worked for Burroughs, um, and and Jim has been writing amazing poetry for decades. And so, not in two thousand fifteen, in in the must have been in the summer of two thousand fourteen, summer of two thousand fifteen or something. I don't know. Jim says, you know. Gosh, I wish we would do something for William. We haven't, you know, the things that have been done, or they haven't been really his spirit. So we put together this uh, on February fifth is William S. Burroughs' birthday. So we put together this William S. Burroughs show um, on on that year and on February fifth, and it was this amazing collection of different types of work by different people and the the qualification to to be chosen as a performer was that you needed to speak to how william s burroughs influenced your work whether you you know sort of reacted against him or for him and so there was a little bit of discussion um kind of jim 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 moderated a panel and then this combination of things of, of um, some that were one woman did this performance piece as William S. Burroughs' wife who gets killed, as we know, yeah, accidentally yeah. As, as the story goes. And so she talks before and after her death. That was one piece. This oh, other poet friend who I adore, Mark Hennessy. That's, you should make that an annual thing. That sounds. Yeah, we so, were talking about so it. Like maybe we need to do that again. I don't know if you happen to know Amber Decker, who's from West Virginia poet. She happened to be in the area doing some some uh, readings with a crew of people in the Midwest and more. And Amber was able to just be in the audience. But but Mark Hennessy put together with some some friends this reenactment of a Burroughs piece called Junkies Christmas, which actually has scenes that are filmed with people who. Yeah, you can find it on YouTube, William S. Burroughs, Junkies Christmas, oh, the William S. Burroughs version, um, the original one with him in it. And and it, there's there are these scenes about this kind of feasting together people. And they're people who, they're artists who live here in Lawrence, Kansas. And this piece, I don't know how long ago that was filmed. But, but Mark and some amazing friends did a reenactment of Junkies Christmas. And we had all these different things yeah. that people yeah, did. It was great. awesome. You and should, you so, should, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you should, some, sometime you should play um, uh, The Priest, they call him. It's a rare CD that I just happen to have. It's, it's William Burroughs uh, reading The Junkies Christmas while Kirk Cobain plays Silent Night, like this, this wow. distorted grunge version of Silent Night behind it. It's, uh -huh. it's really cool. It's a, it's a rare CD, but um, um, it made me think of that because uh, it is the junkies Christmas just um, with a different title. It's called the priest. They called him. It's really cool. And I didn't know that um, it was the same thing until I read uh -huh. the junkies Christmas. I was like, that, that's, that's what um, the priest they called him is. Interesting. But, um, that's, um, but so I, speaking of being in, influenced by him one night, uh, I was on the phone with a friend of mine um, who has a bit of a drinking problem and they can sometimes go on on and on and i was um reading um Bur burroughs uh, minutes to go his cut-up book 
and I I did uh-huh. a cut up poem of his uh-huh. cut up poems uh-huh. um, um, from a minute ago. It's a that's a rare book of his. I think it, but uh, yeah, I think you should do that, make it that an annual thing. <laughs> if you're in Lawrence, Kansas, and Burroughs, that's there. Do an annual yeah. thing. Play a play a, the um, the priest they called him. Uh, I'll have to check that out. That, check out that version. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there are all these things, that it's, and you know, we, you and I had no idea that we might have this interest in common as we're, you know, talking about Topeka and Lawrence and William S. Burroughs. And, <laughs> I love that. I love that. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's because uh, I, I, I got that this album. So I came out when I was fourteen. Is when Cobain was still alive. He, mm-hmm. he. Uh, took his life when I was 14. Um, but uh, I I had it before then, I think. I think. Uh, but I, one thing that inspired me just as much as uh, writers um, did, like Burroughs was an- another massive inspiration for me was music lyrics, mm-hmm. especially uh, Kurt Cobain from Nirvana. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, they they kind of helped push me out into the the um, more experimental stuff because I'd never heard lyrics like that before. I was used to the those stupid hair bands from the eighties, Mountain <laughs> Crew, girls, girls, girls. There's so much so much depth in that, you know. Girls, girls, that's real deep. <laughs> At least music, you know, popular music had its you know, four or five years of decent music come around. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it happened at the perfect time, too, for me, because I was in sixth grade, and that's when the hell started, uh, when the two schools, middle elementary schools merged together. Um, that's when uh, the the I became the outcast pariah. Wow. And, um, and um, so... Um, having yeah, having those bands out at that time being popular, I think kind of helped. But I I couldn't stand it when I see some popular kid walking down the uh, walking down the hall with an Alice in Chains shirt on. I couldn't stand seeing that because I think you can't that person doesn't understand can't relate yeah. to what Lane Staley's singing about. Yeah. When I could, I could Rotten Apple is is exact. I could relate exactly to that. Mm-hmm song like that cool well he we are in the last couple minutes of our hour oh we are well, one five fast i did most of the talking <laughs> too i'm sorry i ate a punch no, that's perfect that's perfect that's perfect and so you get the chance you could share another poem if you'd like if there's something you want to make sure people heard you want to emphasize that you know Wanted to give you a chance. Wrapping up. Um, I guess I'll just read one more poem. Cool. Quick. Um, this is this is my favorite poem from my newest book uh, about consciousness, which just came out um, about a month and a half or so ago from Alien Buddha Press. It's titled "Questioning My Own Truths." In the midst of their omnipresent mainstream thought, 
their abstract order of mindless falsity, which defines, instructs, and orders their personalities and opinions, I, unlatched from the pestilent river of loops in my distant world of epiphany and truth, which comes at the expense of isolation and suffering, sometimes catch myself wondering if, in some strange way, I am silently and subconsciously calling out for their help. I've got to lean into and fully feel the necessity of possible truth, no matter how much it hurts, else all is lost. If you're going to spiral and evolve, you must allow the truth to hurt you in order to break the shackles of falsehoods in which you are currently caged. That's the end of that. That's a powerful poem, and and that the phrase that I grab from there to remind listeners is, "Lean into the truth," you know. And yeah. Saying that that's gonna hurt. Because it, 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 no matter how much hurts, it can be a cage and keep people from moving on to the next level. You have to let it hurt you. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much hurts, you must let it hurt you, or else you're stuck. Yeah. You're not Change. moving or evolving. Change is, is challenging and important and part of life. And so there's there's that. So lean into the truth. Well, Heath Brocker, thank you so much for joining me for this. Thank hour. you so much for having me. That's great. And another shout out to your friend and mine, Scott Thomas Outlaw, because he's the one yeah. who said, hey, yeah. you two should do this thing. Thank you, Scott. And thank you, listeners. So long until <laughs> next time on Talk With Me. Right on.